WDBM East Lansing. Welcome to The Sci-Files, an Impact 89 FM series focusing on student research here at Michigan State University. We're your co-hosts Chelsea Boudou and Daniel Puentes. Michigan is the top producer of asparagus in the country, producing over 23 million pounds annually. One asparagus field can be in production for up to 15 to 20 years if managed well. Today to tell us more about the habitat management of asparagus pets, today we're here with Jen Zavolnitskaya. Jen, may you please introduce yourself and your research? Yeah, my name is Jen, and I'm a graduate student at, in the Department of Entomology here at Michigan State University, and my research focus is really on insect ecology and insect behavior in vegetables, in vegetable entomology. So specifically, I work in the vegetable entomology lab where we study different types of insect pests and also beneficial insects. We use that information that we find about insects, and we actually use it to educate growers. So Michigan State University is a land-grant university, and it's actually the first land-grant university to ever happen in the country. So a part of being a land-grant university is that we use our findings to help educate farmers throughout Michigan about how they can control these pest populations. So that's what I'm specifically interested in. I'm interested in sustainable pest management. And I'm currently working in the Michigan asparagus industry. And what I'm specifically doing right now is I'm researching the overwintering biology of asparagus beetles, which are a key pest of asparagus. And I basically have been trying to find more knowledge about their biology to figure out more sustainable management strategies. It's nice to meet you, Jen. Thanks for joining us this morning on the Sci-Files. When you talk about overwintering of asparagus beetles, what does that mean? What does overwintering mean for the plant itself as well? You might know about butterflies and how they have different life stages. There's a caterpillar, a cocoon, an adult. So all insects go through these different life stages. And as everyone knows, Michigan is in a colder state. We have winter. So a lot of the insects in our state have to actually go basically into hibernation. And that's what I mean by overwintering biology. Insects, they're not warm-blooded. So they basically have to go and find somewhere safe to spend the winter and to basically hibernate. And that's kind of what I mean by overwintering biology. So by knowing more about overwintering biology, we can figure out where are they spending their time. That reminds me of this episode we once had about bees and how bees would actually like dig into the ground to hibernate because it was warmer. Yeah, pretty much all insects do that. All insects are really unique, but specific ones have different places they like to overwinter. So some go into the dirt, but some go into trees, some go into leaves, some go into like parts of the crop. So for example, with asparagus, they cut it back every year and there's these hollow stalks. And what I found from my research so far is that the beetles are actually using these stalks to overwinter in. So this is something that the growers could manage if they just removed the stalks. Usually a lot of things don't grow in the winter, though. Are these stalks just residual from the fall time or whenever they were last in season? Asparagus actually grows in a really funny way. If you've never seen asparagus, it's this really, really tall plant and it's harvested in early May, so right in the spring. And then we're just harvesting the stalks that just come up, but it keeps growing throughout the summer and it actually gets really tall. And at the end of the season in the fall, growers like to cut it all back and they kind of just, some of them clear it out, but some of them just leave it. 
And the asparagus beetles actually like to use those stalks to overwinter in. So I'm trying to figure out what kind of ways can the growers manage this instead of using a lot of heavy insecticides and other methods they often use, they could just simply remove the stalks or manage the habitat. I never knew asparagus grew to the size of five feet. That is so mind-blowing to me. In fact, whenever I always think of the head of an asparagus, I always think of the Demogorgon from Stranger Things. So that's even funnier to me now. But when it comes to the management of these stalks, do they just let it keep growing in the spring or do they need to clear everything to then reseed the field and let new stalks grow? Asparagus is actually a very unique crop. It's one of the only vegetables that is a perennial. And for those who don't know, a perennial is basically um, a type of plant that will come back year after year after year without having to plant it again. So one asparagus field can, you know, last up for 15 to 20 years. And by that, I mean, you don't even have to replant it. Actually, if you plant asparagus by seed, it can take up to three to five years for it to actually start producing the stock that you like to eat. So that's kind of what makes it unique, this pest to deal with, is this pest can basically colonize a field and keep on staying there for years and years and years. And a lot of the time in vegetable production, farmers are rotating crops. So you'll switch out a field every year. So like one year you'll grow carrots and another year you'll grow celery or something like that. You can switch it out. But with asparagus, you can't do that. So it makes it a unique system to work with and a little more difficult to control the pests, too. I love asparagus, and this episode is just making me love asparagus even more. In your research, do you actually have the asparagus beetles in your lab with maybe some stalks of old asparagus to see how they interact with to see how they interact with the field? Or do you go out in the field and observe them? They're actually pretty finicky to keep in a lab environment. So I actually, I'm doing most of my work in the field year round. Like I mentioned, I'm doing overwintering biology studies. So I've actually had to go out in the winter searching for them. So one of the things I was interested in when starting my master's is a lot of people have found asparagus beetles overwintering in trees. So I actually went into a lot of asparagus fields have surrounding like woodlots around them and forests and different types of natural areas. So I actually would search through these natural areas looking for these beetles, which is pretty difficult because it's like finding a needle in a haystack. These beetles are really tiny. So I would have to just search for them in places I thought they might be, which has been kind of tough. But I've also surveyed them through the fall and summer just to kind of get an idea of their general behavior too. Well, as it's already been suggested, it's still cold out. I can't imagine much movement is happening with these asparagus beetles when you're going out and doing these surveys. Whenever you're lucky enough to be able to observe one of these asparagus beetles out in the wild, what behaviors are you able to observe in the winter? Mostly in the winter, we've found they're hibernating. But what we've been more interested in is what types of substrates are like ground cover, are they surviving best? So I've done a few different studies with this. One of them was I sampled different parts of the field. As I mentioned, I was curious whether they're overwintering in these forested habitats. So I would basically just collect whatever was on the ground in asparagus fields and field margins. So that's like the weedy area between asparagus fields and forests and also forests. 
And then I also actually conducted a study where I collected quite a few asparagus beetles and we put them in these overwintering cages. And we had five different treatments of common substrates you would find in an asparagus field. So we've seen them in bark. So we used bark. Some have seen them in like deciduous leaves, pine. Some growers think pine trees are contributing to high beetle populations. So we used pine leaves too. And then we also used those asparagus docks, as I mentioned. And so we just put, we created these little boxes and put them out for the winter. And we put beetles in each one of these boxes and we waited for the winter and counted how many of them survived at the end. So we basically are kind of trying to figure out where are they overwintering and when they're overwintering in these places, where are they surviving the best? So what would be best for the growers to remove? Where should they focus their efforts when trying to control this pest? That's a great experiment design to have five different treatments and common substrates to see how they're thriving in these different environments. You mentioned that you're keeping them in overwintering cages. I personally have never put an insect in a cage. And since you said that it's really small, I'm wondering, what is that cage and how does it work? That was a fun thing to figure out. Being an entomologist, I feel like you have to be a little crafty too, because we're trying to understand these really small insects. And like you said, how do we cage them? So we just figured out ways from previous studies and we basically made like a box frame out of pine wood and then used window screen mesh on the top and bottom. And that seemed to work. A few of the boxes, we did have some break open and probably some escape, but it was pretty efficient at keeping the beetles contained. Kind of like a window screen would keep out bugs out of your house. We thought a window screen would work for a box to keep them in. Well, that's crazy to hear that some of these cages would actually break open and the bugs would get loose. I know Chelsea would freak out at the thought of that. Regarding these different substrates that you were studying, which of the five substrates did the asparagus beetles feel like they had the most compatibility with besides the asparagus stalks, of course? Or did they actually have more affinity towards the others comparatively to asparagus stalks? Our results were pretty interesting. We actually found that they survived at the highest rates in the deciduous leaves. So the leaves that fall in the fall that we get a lot of, they seem to actually really like that. And I would actually see them kind of blanketed in the leaves and they survive at the highest rates in that. But they actually do also survive probably at the second highest rate in those asparagus stalks. So those are really important as well. And this kind of made me think the deciduous leaves, those are coming from outside of the field and the asparagus stalks are coming from inside the field. So it's kind of interesting to think about where should we manage inside the asparagus field or outside of the asparagus field. And this kind of made me interested in looking more at the different tree species that are surrounding these asparagus fields and to see if that had any connection with the success of their overwintering since these deciduous leaves are obviously coming in from around, and they obviously are really important to the asparagus beetle survival. I should mention also that our other study of when we were looking at which habitat type are beetles mostly overwintering in, we tested the three different habitats, the asparagus field, the forest, and the field margin. We found that most asparagus beetles are overwintering in the asparagus field, So this gives us a really good clue to give to growers that they are overwintering all throughout all of these sites, but you should focus most of your efforts in the asparagus field. 
These asparagus beetles, they are mostly overwintering in the deciduous leaves, but it's important to note that these leaves are falling at really high rates in the fall. I should mention too that the asparagus beetles are looking for overwintering in the fall, and that's when we have most of those leaves coming down, and they come pretty heavily down into the asparagus field, and that seems to be where they're mostly overwintering. So I'm from Miami, Florida, and I'm used to seeing like palm trees and coconut trees all the time. Whenever I hear deciduous leaves, I'm not very familiar with it, but I've seen like pine trees a lot here in Michigan. Since there's such a diverse option of tree species and there's so many different landscapes, like there's woodlands and then there's different fields out there. Have you been able to investigate what kind of environments they thrive in more? Yeah, so that's something else I've been really interested in with my research. So I initially was looking at the different trees surrounding these asparagus fields because I was really interested in what types of leaves are contributing to the beetle survival. So part of that was going around all of the fields and measuring the trees. So I would measure how big they were. I would rate like how thick the bark was. And then I also would identify what kind of species they were because I wanted to see if there was any connection between what kind of species or the size and see if that was playing a role at all. I still am not sure about that. I am analyzing the results for that. But it kind of also triggered another question and another big interest of mine, which is looking at the composition of the landscape and understanding how that's influencing the beetles. Insects are all really different in their dispersal. So some insects can go really far, like a butterfly you would probably see, but some insects can hardly move at all. So by understanding how the composition of the landscape is impacting the beetles, we can better understand more about their dispersal and what kinds of landscapes might beetles be more heavily populated in. So some of those factors that I'm looking at are like proportion, like percentage of deciduous trees or percentage of evergreen trees or like how much grassland or even how much asparagus. If there's like a lot of asparagus in the landscape, are there going to be more beetles or are there going to be less beetles? And then also even looking at how that's arranged. So are the asparagus fields all close together? Are they more spread out? That can all play a big role in how insects move and how we should control them. And it's a field that hasn't been super deeply studied, but it is beginning to become more of, of a popular field. And I think it's really important to think about the bigger picture as well. That made me think about something that's similar to shark tagging. Obviously, it'd be on a much different scale since usually you could tag a shark with a large device and then use some sort of satellite to track it through the ocean. Is there a way to track the movement of these asparagus beetles, like through coating them with a fluorescent dye or something like that? Yeah, I haven't personally done that, but I do know of studies where people actually use nail polish to mark different insects or spiders. But more recently, I'm actually hearing about studies where they're using these like little microchips or these little tracking things. I'm not really sure what they're called, but I know they've used them in studies for bees and butterflies, which are often a little bigger than these beetles. But yeah, I think that is becoming more popular because that is a more understudied thing as well, uh, dispersal of insects. It's really hard to track such a small thing that can move so fast and you can't really necessarily always follow it. So that is becoming a bigger question in the entomological community. And I think it's really important to understand the dispersal because if we have an insect that can disperse really far, 
we're going to manage that a lot differently than one that can only move not very far. So as many of our listeners know, Danny and I really like science communication, which is a part of the reason why we even host the Sci-Files. I really like that part of your research is communicating with these farmers about the habitat management of these asparagus pests. How do you communicate with these farmers? Do you have a system already and are you already in communication with them? Yeah, so a lot of the education is through MSU Extension. As I mentioned, MSU is a land-grant university, so we have this whole department of extension that we communicate with these growers, and we have different types of events. One of the ways I've communicated with growers is through extension bulletins, which are basically just like articles that get sent out and growers can read those. But I've also presented at a lot of different meetings. We have the Great Lakes Expo, which is an annual meeting for growers all over the state, I think even outside of the state. And I usually update them with research findings at that. Michigan has a asparagus board. So as you mentioned, Michigan is the top producer of asparagus. So it's, it's a very important commodity here. So I meet a lot of the times with these uh, councils and groups and just keep them updated. But I also meet with farmers. Actually, next week, I'll be presenting at Michigan Asparagus Day, which is just all the Michigan asparagus farmers get together. And we have all sorts of different talks. Usually it's in person and it's a whole event. We try to keep them in the loop of what's the best management strategies that we're finding out now. And that's something I really love about this research is I can see it directly impacting growers who are trying to implement new types of management strategies. And I really enjoy that. What our audience doesn't know is Jen is also the host for another podcast here at Michigan State University. Could you talk a little bit about what you're covering in that show, Jen, and what can listeners expect to hear? Yeah, I would love to. So I'm also a co-host on the podcast Bug Talk, which was started by the Department of Entomology here at MSU. Just a few of us. It's actually almost our one-year anniversary. So about a year ago, we were just chatting and we kind of wanted to find a deeper sense of community in entomology. I feel like often we're talking about our research, but we really wanted to bring forth a podcast kind of humanizing researchers and entomologists and really getting to know the community, both at MSU and at a larger scale. And it's been really fun. We've met lots of different entomologists from all different parts of the world. With Zoom, we've been able to do that, but all sorts of different topics. And I love hearing about not only people's research, but also their journeys through their careers. And a lot of the times these people have really great advice for young entomologists or just young scientists in general. So that's been one of the greatest parts of it, just kind of passing on that knowledge. Yeah, Jen, I can totally relate. It's always amazing to hear what people are studying. And it was really great to hear what you were studying today. Thank you for joining us on the Sci-Files. Thank you so much for having me. This has been really fun. Thank you to all of our listeners for tuning in. To hear more about us and learn more about our episodes, check out SciFiles.org. If you're a current MSU student that would like to be interviewed, please reach out to us at SciFiles at Impact89FM.org. We'll catch you next week on the Sci-Files. And remember, the truth is in the science.